Hey everyone, it's Jenna. This week we are releasing another episode that Michael and Chris and I recorded in our last day or two together in the office before the pandemic hit. Um, But it feels just as relevant today, if not more so than it did before COVID-19. Our topic is free speech, which we've seen play out in the protests to reopen states across the country. We've seen it in the response that the social media platforms have had to how they're dealing with misinformation and fake news surrounding the pandemic. So lots of things to, to think about regarding free speech in our current moments. But this episode does a great job of laying out the historical framework for the First Amendment and what some what the founders had in mind uh, when they were thinking about these issues and how those principles have changed over time to adapt to new communication tools and technologies. So we hope you enjoy this conversation about free speech. And finally, we are taking questions still for our listener mailbag episode, the second annual Democracy Works listener mailbag. Uh, If you have a question about anything we've covered on the show about COVID-19 and democracy, anything else democracy related that's on your mind, uh, you can head to democracyworkspodcast.com slash question or click on the link in the show notes and uh, send us your question. We'll read as many of them as we can on the show, and you will also be entered into a drawing for a Democracy Works coffee mug. So again, send us your questions at democracyworkspodcast.com slash question, and enjoy this episode on free speech. You can't, Madison said, have a Republican form of government without a broad right of the people to examine public characters and measures, as he put it. How would you elect people? How would you examine candidates for public office? How would you unelect someone who you thought was doing a a, a bad job if you couldn't critique that person? From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. Today, guys, we are talking about free speech, um, something that we hear a lot about here on, on a college campus. Um, but our guest today is going to take a bit of a different approach to it, more of a historical context. We are joined by Stephen Solomon, who is the author of a book called Revolutionary Dissent, How the Founding Generation Created the Freedom of Speech, also a Penn State alumnus. And dare I say it, he uh, is more into the founding fathers than you guys are. <laughs> I never thought I would say that, but I, I, I think I it's true. I well, like he is a historian. <laughs> That's not a point in his favor. But maybe our listeners will think otherwise. Uh, all right. Well, so why don't we uh, start by just kind of laying out what freedom of speech means means, uh, where it comes from, and how it kind of relates to some other civil rights that we know. Um, civil liberties. Civil liberties. Yeah, because there, there's an important distinction between a civil liberty and a civil right. Okay. Um, all right, let's, if you can do that in two sentences, do that and then go, <laughs> move on. Civil liberties are about restricting government power. Civil rights are about using government power to protect certain groups. Okay, and, and freedom of speech is? A protection from government power. If you read the First Amendment, it starts, Congress shall make no law that abridges 
And then they go into, right, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of religion. Freedom of the press, freedom, uh, freedom of, assembly. of assembly, and then freedom to, of grievances. You would have right? thought for this podcast we'd have the First Amendment in front of us. We should have, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, that's, that's the five. So. I hear it's on that Google machine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in any case, so well, freedom of speech <laughs> is one of these uh, civil liberties that First are— First Amendment, that first are, one. Right. And um, it wasn't originally part—they're called amendments because they weren't originally in the Constitution. It was a big part of the fight between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists because right? the Anti-Federalists wanted protections against excessive government power, which, of course, is what a lot of the framing period was about. And the Federalists were not opposed to that idea, but rather they argued that we don't need to give protections against powers that we haven't given in the first place. Right. And so they would argue, they did argue, that since, since government doesn't explicitly in the Constitution have the power to, for example, restrict speech or something having to do with the establishment of religion, also part of the First Amendment, mm-hmm. Uh, then we don't have to worry about them making laws that way. They quickly learned that the Constitution could be used differently. Well, and they quickly learned that as part of the politics of getting the thing ratified, they promised that they would put in this Bill of Rights. And then there was that. So we could argue, I think, that the history of jurisprudence in, you know, especially the Supreme Court cases, was trying to understand what the First Amendment means with regards to freedom of speech, what are the legitimate limitations that we can place on it, and what is it, and and these are still fights that are going on to this day, right? Right. So, yeah, because all of these rights are not absolute. Of course. There are restrictions on There them. have to be, right? Yeah. The, the, the classic is... Don't yell fire in yeah, a crowded theater. Yeah, fire in a theater. Um, the other thing is we're talking about political speech, right? So, you know, if you are... Well, there are distinctions between types of speech. Right, right. There's right, political right. speech, which is the most protected. As, that's the I'm most not protected. not a First Amendment expert, but no, it's but the that's most right. protected. Yeah. And there's commercial speech, which is much less protected. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One of the most germane and, and difficult questions around f- free speech right now is in the context of these brand new public forums, namely Twitter and Facebook. Right. And they're private corporations, and they do not have to put any restrictions on speech. And yet, because they are such a forum for not only false information, but deliberately misleading information, lies, efforts to deceive, it becomes very difficult to have what in American jurisprudence has long been called the marketplace of ideas. Yeah, there might be a point at which they become so big. Right. And of course, you know, this is where you get into issues of a kind of how do you read the Constitution Mm -hmm. in the modern age? What did they know about this? Right? Of course. This was, this was an age of partisan newspapers, of if anything, right? <laughs> horses. And, and so the idea of this private network developing mm-hmm. that has such a, a vital role to play in political speech, to the extent where it could even be decisive in a presidential election, re- really just speaks to the, you know, the ambiguity of this time. This speaks to the, 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 the metaphor of the marketplace of ideas, right? Because this is a product of this kind of enlightenment thought that produced the Constitution, produced the First Amendment. Uh, Thomas Jefferson said, truth is great and will prevail if left unto herself. You know, I mean, in a world where there are literally billions of people on Facebook, where there are where tweets can become a tweet storm instantly, the prospect for that being true is just not 
as yeah, it's not as true as it used to be. Let's bring in the the First Amendment expert here. I think as you'll hear, Steve has thoughts about the the marketplace of ideas, how we came to this notion, and where we might go from here, given this context of social media. So let's go now to my interview with Steve Solomon. This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Stephen Solomon. Stephen, thanks for joining us on Democracy Works. Thanks for inviting me. So uh, we are going to be talking uh, about free speech and the First Amendment more broadly today. Uh, and your book, uh, Revolutionary Dissent, kind of traces some of the history of the First Amendment and how it, it came to, to be what we all know and I think as Americans hold so dear today. And just given the the, the place that the First Amendment has and like the the American psyche, I think it's easy to forget about what things were like before it was in place. So can you take us back to the pre-Bill of Rights era and talk about what the, the, the free speech, free press environment was like at that time? Well, the whole revolutionary era uh, from 1765 right through the next 10 or 15 years was an era of tremendous protest uh, demonstrations and all of these protests were actually a violation of seditious libel laws, which traces their roots to uh, the 13th century in England when Parliament passed a law which made it a crime to criticize the king or other important men of the realm, as they put it. The freedom of the press was defined as the freedom from prior censorship. But once you publish something, if you criticized the government or a government official, you could be uh, criminally prosecuted. And in fact, many people were. And before 1700, there were something like 1,200 seditious libel prosecutions in the colonies. This is all in colonial court records. And there were some very severe punishments for criticisms that we just take for granted today. So when you get into, you know, 50, 75 years later, you know, into the 18th century and the protests against the Stamp Act, these were people coming out protesting in the streets and writing pamphlets and complaining with letters and essays and newspapers. These were at least technically violations of the law. And, um, but over a period of time, the, the protests became so popular and were, they used so many forms. It wasn't just the pamphlets and the essays and the letters you know, written by relatively learned people, but also in the streets. The, the liberty trees and liberty poles and the symbolic speech in, in other ways, um, the hanging of effigies of the British prime minister along with the devil, the, the, the meetings that people had in coffee houses and, and so forth. So, uh, you know, protests spread and the public sphere of political expression expanded dramatically. So, so the law still existed, but it was ignored and it was unenforceable. And so what you see in out of this period was an, a, an enlargement of the public sphere of political expression, and especially protest. And that becomes, in a way, part of the political culture of the, the country to be. Yeah, so there, it seems like there's, there's kind of this, this tension between the citizens that are have this kind of revolutionary attitude, spirit, kind of butting up against the remnants of the, the legal structure that, that the, the U.S. Was, was born out of coming from England. Right. And if you ask yourself, what did the people understand to be their freedom? 
Well, if you're a, you're a citizen and you've been out at the Liberty Tree and, you know, there have been demonstrations and there have been effigies of the British Prime Minister and you've been, you've been marching in the street and you've been talking about things in coffee houses and you've been reading pamphlets, what would you think your freedom of speech was coming out of that period? I, I suspect um, you might think that you had these freedoms that were not actually protected by, by law. And so that, I think, in some ways, gave rise to the political culture uh, that was to come. And what was to come was, even after the, the First Amendment, well, before the First Amendment was even discussed as a right, you had the ratification period, where, I mean, many historians call that the, the greatest debate in American history. And it, w- it wasn't all pleasant. There was, you know very deeply written and argued essays and, of course, the, the Federalist Papers and all. But there was also a lot of vitriolic speech and, and um, nasty you know, es- essays and, and nasty poetry. And, and there are all kinds of stuff, the kind of stuff we see today. So that this whole culture of debate, not just in the revolutionary period, but extending to ratification, was part of what people just engaged in um, and, and, and understood and expected. Mm-hmm. And, and that, I think, takes us forward in history to 1800. Uh, you, you just mentioned the Federalist Papers. We love a good Federalist mm-hmm. Papers reference on this show. Um, but your work talks about um, Madison's report of, of 1800, where he, as I understand it, kind of lays out the, really the, the argument for freedom of speech and, and freedom of the press as, as we know it today. Exactly. He laid out his idea of how freedom of the press was centrally part of American self-governance. He compared the American system with Britain. And in Britain, sovereignty was with the king and parliament. In America, there was a whole different idea. Sovereignty was with the people. We the people, of course, is how the Constitution starts. And you can't, Madison said have a Republican form of government without a broad right of the people to examine public characters and measures, as he put it, examine public characters and measures, without worrying about the government punishing you for those ideas. You, you, how would you elect people? How would you examine candidates for public office? How would you unelect someone who you thought was doing a, a bad job if you couldn't critique that person. And that was simply, un, you know, not, it couldn't be squared with the idea of, of a self-governing society. And so, in fact, you know, one could argue that um, even in the absence of a, of a First Amendment explicitly protecting freedom of, of the press, freedom of speech, such a right is implied by a Republican form of government. I mean, I think you can take that from his writings, that you can have self-governance in a Republican form of government as was established by the Constitution without a protected right to examine public characters and, and measures. Right. And, and then that, again, as I understand, it kind of evolves into through some, some later court cases and things. It's like marketplace of ideas, theory that, that, you know, we hear about, and then the answer to bad speech is more speech, and kind of, you know, a lot of the things that we think about today when we, when we think about free speech. Yeah, so, so Madison was very much concerned about 
the model of, of uh, free speech related to self-governance, that it was essential to, to, to a self-governing society. And of course, if you go back to the Enlightenment writers, you have you know, Mill and Milton um, writing about the value of the marketplace of, of ideas, and you needed a marketplace to sort out ideas. And they were pushing it back against official censorship, and it shouldn't be the, within the power of a king or any public official to say what ideas are right and what ideas are, are, are wrong. It's up to the marketplace to determine that. And uh, truth grapples with falsity. And in the end, uh, at least we hope that truth will, will rise to the top. No guarantees of that, but probably better to rely on the marketplace than some authoritarian selection of what the best ideas are. The entire history of free speech and free press is a pushback against that. It's a pushback against the idea that some authoritarian power, uh, whether it's a king, a president, uh, any public official can define what ideas are, are right and what ideas are wrong. It's up to the people to decide that. Of course, within certain limits, because you know, nobody is, is really going to stand up and favor um, speech that incites directly and immediately incites uh, lawless action. Um, and there are other things that are within the exceptions to the First Amendment, but anything involving the discussion of public ideas and governance should be, should be protected. The other thing I think that Madison said that was really important is that, of course, we're all human beings and we're going to make mistakes. And uh, you have to expect some bad behavior by, by journalists, bad behavior by, by citizens who um, might speak falsely. And um, that's part of the marketplace of ideas as well. If you punish false statements too harshly, you'll chill speech. Because after all, many of us say things in public debate. Um, we think we're right. Maybe there are, it's a half-truth. Maybe it's just um, we're just not careful enough, but we misspeak sometimes. And you have to be very careful about protecting that kind of speech as well um, so as not to chill public debate and discussion. Yeah. So, you know, up to this point, we've been talking about freedom of speech and, and freedom of the press as, as two separate things, I think, and, and tell me if, if this is this is right or not, because it, throughout history they they were because there was this like press on the one side, you know, the the mass media kind of model, whether it was pamphlets to newspapers to TV and on and on and on, and then there was you know individual speech on the other side. But I feel like we're at this place today where everybody has their own platform and everybody is kind of their own press these days. So the the lines have gotten much blurrier. Oh, they have. Well, it used to be a, 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 we were in a a long period of time where there were gatekeepers, right? There were the big news organizations and whether they were networks, uh, TV networks or, or big news organizations in print. And you couldn't get published. You couldn't get your ideas out there very easily unless that gatekeeper said, yes, that's a good idea. I'll, I'll publish that. Well, now anybody um, who has access to the internet can put up their ideas uh, in an instant. Everybody, in fact, becomes a journalist, don't they? Because you're walking across a public uh, park or something, and you see something that's going on, you can whip out your, your cell phone and, and make, a, you know, make photographs or, or a video. 
uh, not only can you do that and record what's going on, but you can immediately up, upload it and millions of people can see it right away. Yeah. So, I mean, on its, on its face, that, that sounds like a good thing. I mean, who wouldn't want more, more ideas, more coverage, more lights out there to be shine on what bad things may or may not be happening in the world? But, you know, I also wonder if the marketplace of ideas has just gotten so big that there is almost like this, this chilling effect of like we're kind of afraid to say things sometimes because we worry about what, what the repercussions will be online and, and social media and these kind of things. There's certainly many instances of people putting out their ideas up there and then being so harshly attacked that they have to get off the medium. They have to shut down their accounts or they may even need protection. And that obviously that's, that's regrettable, but um, that comes from universal access to this, this incredible this medium of communication. And also I think the, the other issue which comes into play is with so many people out there with access to the, to the communications, including governments that we don't like, it gets to a point where uh, it's very hard to determine truth from falsity. I mean, it, yes, it's, it's a big marketplace of ideas, but the intentional fabrication of, of information and um, even to the extent of, of you know, these deep fake videos um, makes it very hard for individuals to determine what's true and, and what's false. And people have a, either get the wrong ideas about about what's going on um, because it's, it's all fake or, you know, they just can't determine and it, what's, what's true or false and they throw up their, their, their arms and say, what am I supposed to do now? We hear Mark Zuckerberg and some of these other tech executives use some of the same marketplace of ideas as a, as a defense of their kind of corporate practices of not removing certain posts or speech or, or people from their platform, so that's 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 not the government. But I'm wondering if there's an argument there that you know these platforms have just as much reach, if not a bigger reach, than the the government does does today, and and, and certainly did back, you know, back in history. And and so is you know where does where does that all fit in here? I mean, how should how should these these companies be thinking about the First Amendment when it comes to, to their work? And, and how should we be thinking about it as, as citizens that are interacting with them, getting our news from them, uh, you know, just, just being on these platforms as, as part of our daily lives? Yeah, so the, the, these are questions that are very much debated today. If you go back sort of into the, the, the traditional um, forums, you have street sidewalks and parks where people gathered um, to protest, to discuss issues. This goes back, as we, as we talked about, to colonial times. And there's very well-established First Amendment principles about the government can't interfere in that realm, can't censor speech based on disagreement with a viewpoint that is expressed. The question today is, even while the, the you know, street sidewalks and parks remain a public forum, We've migrated a lot of our public discussion to another form to which the First Amendment doesn't so easily apply, and that's electronic media that's owned by private parties like, like Facebook, Twitter. And much of the conversation is carried on there today as, as an addition to what goes on in, in the real public square, the sort of the traditional public square. But it's owned by... By Facebook, it's owned by, by, by Twitter. 
and there are varying viewpoints about uh, whether um, and how um, private parties should, if at all, censor speech. So one could argue that um, in such an important sphere of public discussion, that why should anybody have the power of Mark Zuckerberg to, if he wanted to, censor speech on any topic? Um, you know, he has vast power. Now, he has, there are terms of use that people have to agree to to be on that platform, and, and they censor already you know, hate speech, and they're required by the European Union to do so. So, but they don't have a First Amendment. The government couldn't require that here. But these private platforms have an enormous amount of power. So one could argue, well, he should arbitrate and, and um, eliminate some voices that are putting out fake videos and um, denying that, um, you know, that, that the Sandy Hook massacre occurred, things that are demonstrably false. And there's others who say, no, nobody should have that power because that puts him in the, in the, in the position of being um, uh, the most powerful person in America, in a sense, um, of being able to, to say what, what people can, can write and publish and, and what they can't. Who weighs in here? Who decides, if, if anyone, I guess? Is this something the Supreme Court should take up? Or, or who kind of moves this needle forward? As you said, there's, there's lots of opinions out there, but a lack of real consensus about what to do about it. You know, these cases are just starting to come before the Supreme Court and, and the federal courts in general. One of the interesting um, cases involving social media or you know, President Trump and other politicians who are, are using their, their Twitter and Facebook accounts to discuss public affairs. And they're using it as a public forum. So Donald Trump started his at real Donald Trump as a private Twitter account. Now, anybody who has a private Twitter account can um, control that account. They can add people, you know, they can, they can block people. And that's no, there's no real uh, controversy about that. The question is what happens when you have this private platform and you use it for public business. And so president Trump and other other public officials around the country have used their, their, their Twitter accounts and Facebook accounts as public spaces where they, they say, I'm going to, they may not actually say this, but they use it. They, they, they make all their public pronouncements. They comment on issues. That sounds like President Trump, right? Well, if you're, you, if you're using it in that way, do you have the, the right to, to cut people off? Do you have the right to block people? And uh, President Trump blocked people who were talking back to him. Uh, they challenged him in court. And the courts so far have said that he created a public forum. He opened up his Twitter account to discussions of public affairs. He uses it as an official platform. And as such, he can't then make decisions about cutting people off because he disagrees with their viewpoint, because they're pushing back. And so that's kind of an interesting idea because, again, it's a, Twitter is a private platform. Normally, people would have the, you know, the, the, the power to, to cut people off. But if you're a public official and you're using it as the same way you would use, let's say, the White House for a press conference or you're using a public park to give a speech, 
then maybe it starts to look like more like you know a, a, a public park rather than a private account. So like uh, let, let's maybe come back to this this idea of of self censorship. I mean, what mm-hmm. what do you see happening there? I mean, if you if you can think about our 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 media climate today, it doesn't seem like that's going to get any any better. I mean, I, I hear from from students that sometimes when they are in class, they they feel like they they can't speak up or they they don't want to speak up because they're they're afraid of how what they say will be perceived and there's as we we kind of said before this whole other like chilling effect that, that that's also happening so what what do we do about that or, or where do you think that that's likely to to go i think there is a chilling effect that has to do with peer pressure and i think you see that on college campuses you know some campuses may be predominantly liberal some may be predominantly conservative and i think there's there may be on some campuses a, a culture in which it's very difficult for someone who has a, a, a divergent view to feel um, that they can put it out there um, and still have friends. And I think that is, you know, if you're a teenager, uh, whether in high school or, or in college, that's a difficult thing to deal with. And people may, in fact, be, be, be chilled in that way. You know, I think to the extent possible... Uh, speech on college campuses should mirror what goes on in society at, at, at large. Um, you know, this is a free speech is tumultuous. It is really wide open. It's often vitriolic. Um, I'm not in favor of people shouting at each other, but but that's part of it, I guess, um, because we're human beings and we have um, part of what we put into our thoughts is an emotional element. And I think that on college campuses, you know, you can't interfere with one another and threaten one another. But but a a, a strong you know campus of of where people can, can put their views out there, divergent views, and have productive discussions is is the way to prepare oneself for a civil society, and as a, as a model for how we we resolve questions on which we disagree. So. Yeah, I think there is there is that that element of, of of peer pressure, and I'm not sure how to how you get around that except for professors making it very clear to students that you know in their classrooms that all views all views uh, on the subject matter at discussion are are welcome, and there's not necessarily a right answer to the, to the issues that are being discussed. They're just dif- different opinions, and you have to back up your opinions with, with facts, with historical context. That's critical reasoning. So, you know, the other thing that we, we hear about in the kind of college campus free speech discussion is that uh, you know, people particularly on the, the left side of the spectrum th- consider some acts of speech to, to be violence and that kind of those two are, are, are blurring. So where, what do you make of that from a, from a First Amendment perspective? A lot of the complaints have to do with words that offend people. They could be slurs. They could be ideas that are offensive to, the, to, to, to students and others. And one, one of the questions was a number of questions that come up. How, do you, how would you, if, even if you wanted to regulate such speech, how would you do that? Who do you trust? Who do you trust to make those decisions? Are, are you going to put that in the hands of the president of Congress? Are you going to put it, that in the hands of the university president to make decisions about what's offensive and what, what isn't? Who's, you know, how, how are you going to make those, those kinds of decisions? And what does offensive even mean? 
I mean, it means different things in different contexts. If you go back to the civil rights movement of the 1960s, um, what demonstrators in favor of, of, of equal rights were doing in the South was offensive to the Southern way of life. And so what, what did you see? It was uh, police out with hoses and, and dogs um, set upon demonstrators. First Amendment was the friend of progressive uh, values, um, and I think it has been for through American history. Um, offensive speech is a very dangerous thing to regulate because it's an inherently vague concept, and it implies that someone can make a decision on what's offensive and what's not offensive, and that person is an authoritarian figure. And... Generally, that can't come out well. Right, which, which people, the same people making these claims probably wouldn't want that type of outcome either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's right. I think a lot, of, a lot of people who want that kind of regulation assume that all the regulation will be to their benefit. And if you, are, if you self-define as part of a, of a group that's been oppressed, for example, what really makes you think that suddenly the powers that be will, will outlaw speech that does really offend you. Maybe it'll be the other way around because you don't have the power. Well, not, not the most optimistic, no, but we sometimes end that way <laughs> around here. But um, yeah, thank you for, for your, your work and your book and the, the history lesson today and the, and the context for where things stand. And uh, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for inviting me here. It's an election year, and if you are a listener of the show, that means voting and maybe even campaigning for your preferred candidates. But supporters of democracy like you also believe in the value of working together with people across differences to strengthen our country. A new nonpartisan program called Uniting for Action America provides just that opportunity. The program is open to U.S. residents over the age of 18 from urban, suburban, and rural areas with wide-ranging political views. You'll have the chance to build relationships, strengthen your problem-solving skills, explore different perspectives, and take action to strengthen our country and our democracy. The registration deadline for Uniting for Action America is June 30th. If you're interested, you can sign up at uraction.org slash America. Again, that is uraction.org slash America. And the registration deadline is June 30th. I really found this conversation really interesting in terms of how it speaks to the distinctiveness of the American understanding of free speech, right? You have this, his argument is, that it all comes out of the revolution. And our understanding of free speech is directly associated with Americans' rejection of, of the king and the laws against speaking ill of the king. But it's not like free speech was separated out and even incorporated into the Constitution in the first place. Rather, it's one of a list of protections. I agree. The, I mean, so it's, it, gets, it gets the privilege of the First Amendment, mm-hmm. right? But it's in there with a whole bunch of right. other things as right. well. That's true. But, it, but his argument, it seems to me, is that this is about our political culture, yeah. right? That, that there is this idea 
that being an American means that you have the right and, and even the kind of expectation that if you don't like what you're getting from your government, you should say something. Right. I mean, there are other democracies, European democracies that don't have right. these protections. And so, for example, and I'm no expert in this area, but uh, Germany, you can't say certain things about it. You can't. Holocaust denial is illegal. Right. Yeah. He raises another issue, which is more relevant, I think, to our times right now in this country about the notion of self-censoring speech. Yeah, and in, in college. In particular, yeah. in college. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so the argument is that colleges are um, kind of fiefdoms of the left and that most professors are, um, you know, Democrats at minimum. And so if you to are- indoctrinate cons- their students. Right, exactly. Try to, yes. and, and if you are a conservative- either by upbringing or by disposition, you don't feel like your point of view is respected or that you can even offer it. I think a lot of those concerns are way overstated, although I do think that diversity in the academy is important. I I agree with that. And And there are outliers within the academy where their critique is far more germane than it is here. Yeah, but it's also just that, you know, the... Diversity is important for all kinds of reasons. Yep. And especially in, intellectual diversity. Yes. The self-censorship in the classrooms, which I think has is kind of a newer thing. At least I don't remember hearing about this for years and years. And it seems like we hear a lot more mm-hmm. about it now. And this is the idea that students are afraid to speak. And, you know, I think what, what because they will be seen by their professor perhaps as, you know, being against their point of view. Although from research I've read on this it's more that they self-censor because of their concerns about other students. I think that's because right. Of other, because the of the peer is, is peer effect is very powerful. But, but you see, I think this speaks much more to problems with polarization than it does to free speech issues. And I think that's what he would say too. I mean, yeah. he did say that, right? Mm-hmm. That that it, why should college be any different than the other dimension of American life right now. Yeah, we're in a, we're in a time of affective polarization, right, right. Uh, affective partisanship, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. where, you know, you tend to really see people of the other party and your own party, you know, so if you are a Republican student in a room that, you know, could very well be in this day and age, 80% Democrat or at least 80% depending on the Trump class, supporting. right? <laughs> yes, yeah, so depending on the class, then yeah, it can be uncomfortable mm-hmm. to speak and it mm-hmm. takes a skilled instructor Right. To make sure that they feel comfortable to do that. The other dimension of free speech in college life that I think is worth bringing up here is this uh, question or the, the critique of free speech on the left, right, where you can make claims that are uh, – that are genuinely violent, that are the functional equivalent of, of a violent act against a person. Say if you're saying something, I mean, it, misogynistic or transphobic or homophobic, right? You just, you, your speech is unacceptable because the person who is receiving it finds it so upsetting as to be violent. And therefore, that is grounds for restricting it. Right. Well, this was what Jonathan Haidt talked right. about mm-hmm. quite a bit when he was here. And uh, I would recommend going back to that, yeah. that podcast because yeah. he's a, about as interesting a person on talking about these campus free speech issues as, That's as true. is out there right now. And, and um, his argument is that, you know, A, if you are going, it's, it's not that dissimilar from Madison's, right? If you are going to accept free speech, you have to accept the fact that you're going to hear things that you don't like. Especially in an academic setting. You're going to have to accept yeah. that. And even if it is hurtful, 
you have to do that. Now, the, the, the immediate response is going to be, listen to the two old white males <laughs> saying about, <laughs> talking about this, right? And that's not false. That's worth hearing. But, it, but the, the, the fundamental core of the, this Madisonian point remains that you cannot escape, you cannot set parameters around speech that uh, deny someone's ability to say something and call it free speech. Yeah, that democracies require the right, ability to be right, able to do that. Right, and yeah. the ability to accept a, yeah. discomfort and to accept um, hearing things you don't want to hear. Indeed, the discomfort might be exactly what the speaker wants. That that sometimes it's necessary to feel discomfort well, to, to appreciate circumstances. And as we all know, if you're going to change your mind about something that experience almost invariably involves some dimension of discomfort. Exactly. Anyway, uh, well, uh, so thanks to uh, Steve for, for coming to, to campus and for uh, being a great alumnus, great representative of uh, dear old state. Thanks to Jenna Spinelli for a terrific interview, and uh, thanks to all for you for listening. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Burke. This has been Democracy Works. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Episodes are engineered by Andy Grant and Craig Johnson, edited by Chris Kugler and Mark Stitzer, and reviewed by Emily Reddy. Our interns this semester are Nicole Grayson and Stephanie Crane, to graduating seniors in the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications at Penn State. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a rating or review in your favorite podcast app. Democracy Works is part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts focused on civic engagement, civil discourse, and democracy. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about our member shows and view playlists on topics like immigration and impeachment that are curated from across member shows. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.